Welcome to 5001 The Athletics Leicester City Podcast. I'm Rob Tanner. Joining me as ever is Leicester City legend and former captain Matt Elliott. And we have two Matts uh, today as well because a special guest, Matt Piper, the former Leicester winger, is joining us as well. Good day, guys. How are you all? Yeah, not bad, Rob. Thanks. And Pipes? Yeah, I'm very good. Thank you, mate. Good to have you on board, Pipes. Good to be on board, Matty Top Man. Now, guys, I trust you're keeping healthy. Uh, Matt, you've uh, been walking, have you? Been out and about? I did actually go for a walk. My first one of the isolation period, a three-miler, Rob. What about that? Three, three miles. miles? Blimey. Yeah, ju- just in Is the locality. Is that about much as you covered in a season? <laughs> you're not wrong there. You know, I just set myself up there, didn't I? But uh, yeah, I, I went down and got some... Um, Necessities from the local supermarket. And did you get any food? Well, yeah, yeah necessities and uh, a cottage pie. That was it, mate. But I um, <laughs> uh, made the mistake of forgetting I've got to carry it all back again. And my shoulders and arms were in bits. It was like a proper workout, but uh, much needed exercise, that's for sure. And Pipes, I'm glad to hear you're feeling a bit better because you've been through the mill a bit, haven't you? I have, mate. I um well, we don't know if we had it, do we? I mean, the people that have had it who haven't been tested don't know if they actually had the virus, but I, I believe that me and my missus um, had it. Uh, wiped me out for about three days, but I'm back to 100% fitness now, mate, and feeling good. That's good to hear. I mean, how bad was it? Well, it's pretty bad, mate. And it, the reason why I think I had it and the, the missus, we sort of lost our sense of smell, taste, aching all over. But it wasn't like a general flu that you that I've had probably, I don't know, 30 times over my lifetime. It was, your head felt clear. There was no bunged up nose or anything like that. It was just aching, struggling to breathe, sore throat. Um, and for some reason, my kidneys were killing and I've not even been drinking. So it, I, I've really felt like I had it. But, but I've come through it now and everything everything's back to normal, mate. Birch, and we've checked in with the Birch uh, this week and he's been ringing certain um, season ticket holders, elderly season ticket holders, vulnerable to try and cheer them up. And I imagine that would do the trick, wouldn't it? That'd be a perfect tonic, a, a call from the Birch. I could do with one of them myself, Rob. He's uh, he, he always lightens the mood, doesn't he, to Sir Birch and Hoffman? Oh, absolutely. But this is, could be a big week in terms of um, what's going to be happening to the Premier League, what's going to be happening going forwards because with so much uncertainty and I think that's the biggest problem is the uncertainty. I mean, somebody asked me the other day about well, why is this any different to a closed season? Um, but you can budget for a closed season. You know when a closed season ends. You can still launch your kit and still sell your season tickets. At the moment, the football club can't do any of that because they don't know in what format the season's going to be, when it's going to start again next season. They can't sell season tickets uh, for the end of the season. Um, so it's all this uncertainty, but there's a couple of key meetings this week. Hopefully, we might know a little bit more about what's going to happen moving forward, because I think there's a real desire now um, to get the season finished. I think this um, declaring it null and void, that's the last option. Nobody would want to touch that. So they're trying to come up with various ideas of how they can fulfil the fixtures and finish the season. There's been a few ideas muted. Uh, I'll ask you both of you about what you think of these ideas. One of them is to take all the teams away somewhere 
and um, play them at neutral venues and just play out all the fixtures. One of the ideas was Qatar. The other one is the Midlands and using the three Premier League grounds that are VAR ready, Villa Park, Molyneux and King Power Stadium. Matt, what do you think of that idea? It sounds extreme, doesn't it, to say the very least, uh, particularly the, the, the idea that was put forward regarding Qatar or any international travel at the moment is going to be a massive issue, isn't it? The logistics of that, I mean, Qatar would probably be open to the suggestion, you know, as they were with the World Cup, etc., and the infrastructure they have, the facilities and the, the recognition that they would probably get for holding such an event. But it, it does seem a step too far, in my opinion, certainly initially. What do you think, Pipes? Actually, was it, I think this first came out um, in The Independent and I, I read the article and I actually thought initially it was a good idea. I mean, some of the pros and cons that came out of it, the, the cons being um, obviously players all surrounding each other and, you know, where are they going to stop? It's going to have to be a hotel. They're going to have to come into contact with staff at the hotel. Um, the other one that seemed a major issue was the if anyone got injured, because obviously, as this pandemic continues and gets worse in the next couple of weeks, there won't be any free hospital beds if someone got a serious injury. So I sort of hear them cons. I hear what Matt is saying. I don't think it can be played in a different country. I think it has to be, if it is going to go ahead, it will have to be played in this country. I think the Midlands seems the best place to do it. I think it's the best idea I've heard so far because I'm I'm one of them that are in the, the camp of this season has to be completed somehow. Well, absolutely. And another option uh, that's been suggested is play it all at St. James's Park. I mean, you've got a big hotel there. You can keep certain number of teams there all in isolation just to play the games. That could be another option. And of course, these ideas are all being thrown up because there's a real desire to fulfil the fixtures for the TV rights holders as well, because they are the big paymasters of the Premier League. I think something like £720 million would be due. And this has been muted before. And I know, Matt, we spoke about this last week, about the deferment of wages, because you guys went through it during the administration period that Leicester City were in. Um, but it's starting to take effect now. And there's been a number of clubs that have announced uh, certain measures, um, one of them being Spurs that have announced um, a pay reduction for 550 staff but not the players. Now, <laughs> for me, that sounds really strange because we're all supposed to be in it together. This is the whole idea. We're in it together. If a club is going to start taking wage deferments and wage cuts, then surely that should be every employee at the football club that should be doing that. Leicester City, for, for what I know, trying to resist doing that at the moment. So those we're not sure what where they're going to go with that. I think they're going to be waiting to see what the outcome of these meetings this week, guys. But what do you think of that? First of all, Pipes, what do you think of that deferment of Spurs? In all truthfulness, that is absolutely scandalous. You know, when these stories started coming out, I thought that was just awful, to be honest. I mean, as a as a former player myself, I think, you know, I think a lot of the players uh, and those that are on the real high wages at the football club could defer, should defer uh, and keep paying the, the rest of the staff. And then obviously when everything starts back up and we're back to normal, those players will get those payments back uh, moving forward. But it's absolutely scandalous to start furloughing staff and laying people off, um, especially for the, the hierarchy in the Premier League. Matt, what do you think of the idea? 
similar views, Rob, as is the general consensus. I think it's it is it is a ridiculous scenario, isn't it? And I think the the clubs that are, have been mentioned or the clubs involved will would would do well to readdress the situation, as they more than likely will do, because there will be a backlash from many quarters if uh, if the players are to to continue to be paid, you know, the, the exceptionally high wages that they are, and others pay the price for the current climate. It's 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 just not on, is it? And I think you'll find, as, as has been mentioned, at Leicester City. Now, again, this comment hasn't been verified, but there were rumours being mooted that some of the players have put themselves forward to the board, etc., and said that if there is a necessity to, to cut back um, financially, that they're actually making offers to, you know, to, to go to the board and, and, and take a, a deferral on their wages over a period of time, at the very least, and uh, you know, to help resolve and soothe the situation. I wouldn't be surprised if that was the case. It happened in a different scenario to us at Leicester City when the club was going into administration. Um, you know, it, it was a different time and a different context, of course. But as you say, everyone in together. And I think the players will quite happily take a percentage of their wages. I don't want to speak for them. <laughs> they might want me to shut my mouth. I don't know. But if that did become the scenario, and if it meant other people staying in their jobs and being paid fully at a lesser amount, I don't think they'd have a problem with that at all. Let's hope that in a couple of months' time we could be talking about the players returning to, to training and, and all this being over and, and any uh, deferment of uh, wages that the players might volunteer. And I, I certainly totally agree with you, Matt. I think, I think the Leicester City lads would certainly be uh, the sort that would certainly look after the uh, the rest of the people at the club. And we saw with Casper Schmeichel's generous donation as well to the local hospitals and uh, various other people around the game who have been doing such um, um, brilliant work as well. I know uh, obviously Pep Guardiola's donated a million to million euros to the uh, uh, the hospitals in Spain in his homeland, which is obviously getting hit hard by this. Um, but I'm sure that uh, the Leicester City lads would uh, step up to the plate uh, if required, let's hope it doesn't come to that. Thanks to our good pals at Beer52.com, you have the opportunity to sip eight delicious, painstakingly sourced craft beers from around the world. All you need to do is go to www.beer52.com forward slash 5000 and pay the postage of just £4.95. And, as if that wasn't enough, as a listener to 5000 to 1, you'll get two extra free beers. Beer 52 are beer pioneers. They travel the globe to find the best and most interesting beer from the very best craft breweries. They're the world's most popular craft beer discovery club. The beauty of Beer 52 is that you can leave any time, so the power is in your hands. Your case will also include the award-winning craft beer magazine Ferment and a beery snack is thrown in too. Just go to www.beer52.com forward slash 5000 to get your free beer. And don't forget right now, listeners, to 5000 to 1, get two extra free beers. Well, here at The Athletic, we're still trying to write about football. We're still trying to entertain our readers. And uh, let's talk about some football then, because I've been running a series looking at three great Leicester City goals of the uh, recent times. And um, I've picked three out that I've done features on, which are now on the uh, Athletic website. And uh, you guys will be very familiar with these goals. Um, Matt, you've either been involved in the games or you've watched them live 
pipes. I'm sure you've seen these go these goals many, many times. We'll start with the first one that the readers can vote uh, on the uh, on Twitter as well for, for their favourite of these three. The first one, Jamie Vardy against Liverpool, that uh, dipping volley during the title-winning season. Mares, excellent work. Mares, high ball over the top. Vardy is chasing it. Thinks about the shot first time. Oh, oh what a oh. goal! Matt, you were co-commentator, weren't you, on the local radio? I was, yeah. I was fortunate enough to, to witness it. I was actually right behind uh, the line of the strike as, as he, he broke down that right-hand channel, didn't he? And weighed up his options and a wonder strike, wasn't it? I was right behind it. As soon as he hit it, he thought, whoa, something special is just going to happen. And uh, it certainly did. And what an occasion, you know, the, the roof came off the KP, didn't it? And... It was the opposition and the timing of it, as well as the actual technique of the goal itself, wasn't it? You know, it was sort of a rubber-stamped confirmation that Leicester were genuinely up for the fight of going to win the Premier League. And, uh, yeah, one of many fine goals by Jamie Vardy. But uh, that probably, probably tops a lot for him. Although, I really like the one against West Brom, the Mares over the top and left foot guided volley in you know different circumstances but the technique of that was probably uh, of equal quality but uh, yeah I think just for sort of standout wow factor that goal was uh, was unbelievable wasn't it well I spoke to Craig Shakespeare who's the uh, assistant manager on the day and he said that was the best goal he had seen in his time at Leicester City in both spells Pipes what did you think well, I was actually there on the night as well. I was sort of in hospitality, but similar to Matty, I was right behind it. And the biggest compliment that I can pay him is when, because you know when a footballer's shaping to shoot. And he started shaping to shoot from that ridiculous angle, that far out, with the ball bouncing. And I just thought, what are you doing? And as he's hit it, and I, I saw the connection, and I, I was right behind it, and when it flew past, I think it was Mignolet in the top corner. What a goal. It, it is one of the best goals I've seen live. I was lucky enough. It wasn't scored by a Leicester player, but I was lucky enough. I think Matty played in the game, actually. We spoke about it the other day when Bergkamp scored Oh, here we go. Goal. Here we go. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Matty. Sorry, Matty. What, what do you mean you. you think I played? You know it's me that he twisted up. <laughs> <laughs> I was lucky enough to to witness that goal live and it's the only time I've ever stood up as a Leicester fan at a Leicester game um, goal getting scored against Leicester and I clapped the goal I felt I had to I thought it was the best goal I'd ever seen but Jamie Vardy's comes very close to that as one of the best goals i ever seen in life I should have tried standing up as well Pipes might have helped me out a bit instead of diving in <laughs> Well, let's move on to another cracking volley. Lillian Nallis, uh, I managed to track him down to Corsica. He's um, an academy advisor at uh, a club called Bastia. And he was happy to talk about that goal as well. And he says that as soon as that ball started to arc out of the sky and he decided to strike it, he knew it was going to end up in the back of the net. Perfectly in the rest of his career. 
Matt, you, you weren't playing that day, were you? You were in the stands. Was that right? I was playing as part of the squad, but I was actually in the stands being rested by Mickey Adams for a change. <laughs> Just uh, <laughs> watching Lillian strike that wonder goal against Leeds, wasn't it? Yeah, and it, to be honest, it wasn't anything. Listen, it was an amazing strike, don't get me wrong. But you weren't totally startled by it because Lillian was capable of strikes from distance regularly in training, sometimes in games as well. But uh, it was a standout strike, don't get me wrong. But, you know, probably the best of his career. But uh, you weren't totally aghast by it because you thought, go on, Lillian, you're capable of that. Some players... Keep persisting with shots from distance. Wilfred and Dealey springs to mind. Very rarely are they successful. But with, <laughs> with, with Lillian, you felt it was worth a pot, uh, a pot shot and uh, proved to be the case. Wonderful strike, wasn't it? Wonderful strike. Unfortunately, to no avail in terms of the season as a whole, uh, as relegation ensued. But it was, uh, it was a memorable moment in that campaign. Well, Paul Dickoff scored two great finishes that night as well, and James Scowcroft scored that night, but nobody ever remembers their goals. And you're right, it didn't really count for that much. It was a 4-0 victory over Leeds, which everybody hoped would kick-start the season. I think you lost five on the bounce after that as well, and it became yeah. a very tough tough campaign. Uh, you, but... you, you mentioned about Corsica, Rob. Sorry to jump in, but Lillian was a great character as well. We, we used to call him Tarzan, but he had the physique. <laughs> he was a beast, and he had the long hair and the looks to... The accent, didn't he? He had it all. Um, but what a great lad he was as well. We used to use him to collect all the lads together on a night out. If, if we were out, 25, 30 strong of us, scattered around certain uh, venues, it was a difficult job. And me as captain, trying to get the lads together to move on to the next horn, um, was easier said than done. So we found a way, because Lillian, coming from Corsica, used to hunt wild boar in his youth and he'd been brought up that way and <laughs> and he could do this unbelievable imitation noise of, of a wild boar which used to attract them subsequently they could hunt them um, and it didn't matter if music was on or not in a bar stroke nightclub you could hear it it would override the music and everything so Lillian time to go round up the lads so he'd stand up on a table and do this big deep, like, haunting groan of a wild boar. All the lads' heads would flick up. All oh, right, it's time to move on. And we'd collect. Uh, we'd all meet up outside together. And that was our little roll call from Lillian. He served a purpose off the pitch as well as on it. <laughs> Pipes, do you remember that goal? Where were you when you when Lillian scored that? I remember watching that goal on TV. And the, the, the greatest thing I thought about that goal was the technique. Because as we all know as footballers, a volley like that, trying to judge it coming out of the sky um, and making the, the contact that you want and steering it past you know, a goalkeeper from that distance, it was an outs- outstanding strike. But, but probably for me, I don't know if it's because Jamie Vardy's was just unbelievable. Muzzy is one of my, uh, and Matty, one of our really good mates. But for me... I think it just comes third on your uh, on your voting list. Well, let's get to the uh, the final one then. Muzzy, is it? Now, the other goals were both on television, weren't they? And everybody's seen them around the world. This one was on a, a wet afternoon in Grimsby. Muzzy, is it? <laughs> sensational overhead uh, kick at, uh, well, in the, the sunny climbs of Cleethorpes. Oh, fantastic goal, Muzzy, is it? What a goal from the Turkish international. That's right out of the top drawer. 
Matt, you were actually on the pitch this time, weren't you? I was. I was. I got there eventually. I was involved in that one. Uh, for me, say the best till last, Rob. Uh, Jamie Vardy, incredible strike. You know, the, the timing, obviously, the atmosphere, the occasion and everything. I get that. Maybe I'm a little bit biased, but um, Lillian, you know, was a wonderful strike to get that control as he did. But goals like Muzzy's overhead kick from, what, 18, 19 yards out? They don't come around too often, do they? You know, that's one of the best goals I've seen full stop, never mind in a Leicester City shirt. It's the profile. Yeah, exactly. Well, the the, the profile of the the game detracts a little bit from its notoriety. But if that was against Man United, you know, in a league game, in a, I don't know, an FA Cup quarterfinal, whenever you like, against Peter Schmeichel, Peter Schmeichel's still not saving that, by the way. I don't care who the keeper is. Um, it was just an unbelievable strike from you know, a top-quality player, wasn't it? And again, <laughs> you expected the unusual from Muzzy. He was capable of the ridiculous. But he excelled himself that night. And it, it, it's a shame, with all due respect, it was wasted on a cold Tuesday night in Grimsby. Well, he surprisingly <laughs> said to me that there wasn't even the best goal he ever scored. He said the best goal he ever scored was for Chelsea reserves. Uh, Glenn Hoddle flicked a ball over for him and uh, he flicked it over a defender, but the ball never touched the ground. Flicked it over one defender, like Gaza style, 96, and then buried yeah. it top corner. He rated it even higher than the, uh, the overhead kick uh, against Grimsby. Wouldn't surprise me, Rob. Wouldn't surprise me one iota. I mean, goals against Leeds and Tottenham spring to mind as well. But the technique of that overhead scissor kick was was something special, wasn't it? But uh, I can't believe my goal in the uh, FA Cup quarterfinal against Chelsea at Stamford Bridge in 97 didn't get there. Look that one up, Rob. Look that up when you get a chance. We were 2-0 down. I got shoved up front about two minutes to go. Arnigan Larson, little ball around the corner to me. I received the ball with back. Back to goal, Marcel Desai and John Terry marking me. Little Cruyff turn, they dove in. Cruyff? Cruyff turn, mate. You sounds strange, but true. <laughs> okay, then Desai comes sliding back in to recover. Oh, see, another little dummy. Then I had a little stutter. Ed De Hoy in goals, going to his left. I'm looking that way. Give him the eyes, slid it to the right, passed it through Desai's legs. Thank you very much. In the back of the net. All to no avail, though. The referee blew the whistle about a minute later and we went out of the cup. So it never got noticed, but you can dig it up. It's on YouTube somewhere, Rob. Have a look. I'm sure the listeners will be now <laughs> diving onto YouTube to have a look at this goal to see if it matches the billing you've just given it. Pipes, getting back to Muzzy's goal, sensational technique, that. And also, what's your favourite goal that you scored? Oh, thanks for that question, Rob. I only scored one. It was a head up at Filbert Street. Um, but no, going back to Muzzy's goal, I, I've said it on a number of occasions. I think, you know, thinking back, I know I didn't play often because I was injured a lot throughout my career, but all the brilliant players I played with, um, Matty Elliott comes at a close second on the list, but Muzzy was definitely. The, the most skillful, talented player I ever played with. And and when you see that goal back, the Grimsby goal, um, as Matty said, really, you you kind of expect things like that from Muzza. He was he was that good. 
Um, even in training, he scored outrageous goals. And sometimes, Muzzy was one of them players. Now, I don't mind admitting this, that you, you're training with sometimes and you're watching him and you think, oh, God, I, I'm, as a young lad, you're thinking, I'm never, ever going to be that good. Um, but you keep ploughing on, you keep sprinting down the wing and spinning crosses in. But he is probably the best player that I ever played with. And that goal just it would have been nice to, to be against a Man U or an Arsenal in a massive game. Uh, because it, it would have got more credit, I think. But it was a brilliant goal. And obviously that's one of the features that's on The Athletic now. So anybody listening who wants to read up on those, uh, those relive those memorable goals and just head over to The Athletic. And another series of features that we've been running since the very start has been Perfect Footballer. Now, uh, Pipes, just to, to explain this to you, this is where we ask uh, former pros to come up with their freakish type of Frankenstein footballer, where they pick the best attributes uh, and combine them into one perfect footballer. Now, uh, Matt's had a go at this in the past, and one of your both of your former teammates, Frank Sinclair, has had a go, and uh, he's picked uh, Rude Hullet and Dan Petrescu. He's got he's got Alan Shearer's right foot, Graham Lasso's left foot, and uh, the speed of Thierry Henry. But in there, as the best tackler, is Matt Elliott. Are you shocked, Matt? Oh yes. <laughs> <laughs> But let me let me let's just expand a little bit because he's given an explanation of why he picked you. Uh, he has said that the, you were an underrated defender. Matt wasn't the quickest, and he would be the first to admit he didn't live the life of an athlete. There's a surprise. <laughs> he was around six foot three and weighed fifteen stone. Matt would eat anything he wanted before games. I'll never forget seeing him tucking into some fish and chips once. The thing is, he wasn't the quickest anyway, so it wasn't going to make much of a difference. But when he crossed the white line, he was fantastic. We used to call him Batfink, after the cartoon character who had big wings and would block everything. With his tackles and large frame, Matt would just be able to get in the way. His body would stop so many shots, he just had this ability uh, to time his tackle to perfection. So, Batfink, uh, let's just <laughs> expand a little bit on your pre-match ritual. Fish and chips? I know, do you know what? As most people who know me, yeah, they'll agree, I, I do like... Uh... A bit of a munch, and I still do to this day. Uh, but um, we used to be able to get away with it back in the day, burn it off, etc. But uh, do you know what? I actually can't remember having fish and chips. I think, yeah, I think it was just after my, uh, my first course, which was a large sausage in batter and mushy peas as well, I think. <laughs> but it was, <laughs> I, I, I sort of learned the error of my ways a little bit later down the line. I, I restricted it to sort of scrambled eggs and beans on toast and stuff but the temptation at pre-match meal was ah oh, it was painful Rob it was painful because you had to have a relatively light lunch but I could have just ate the whole buffet you know any time <laughs> but it was uh yeah that that was I, I tell you when, when I did really get stuck in was after the game as as things evolved they used to bring you straight after the game recommend that you eat as quick as possible after the game um you know just to get the nutrients back in and recovery period Used to bring in pizza, chips, pasta, burgers, everything. All the carbohydrates and protein back in. Well, less protein, more carbs. And I used to get steamed in straight away. Most people couldn't eat for an hour or two after the game, but that was uh, that was heaven. Especially if we'd had a good win, I could chuck a couple of beers in as well. But um, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, I remember the old bat think. I, I remember that nickname at first. I was struggling a bit. And I went, yeah. 
I've got it now. And I put it partly down to the reasons Frank says in terms of, I, I, by my own admission, without patting myself on the back, I, I was quite good at blocking shots, um, the passes, etc. in terms of reading the game. And it, there's more to it than people probably realise, you know, in terms of positioning yourself and knowing where the goal is, knowing where your keeper is. You know, some, there's no point getting in the line of sight of your goalkeeper to make a block if it goes narrowly wide of you. The keeper's wrong footed. So I, I did sort of get that off to, not a T, but, you know, I, I, I was decent at that side of the game. Steve Howie was another one who was decent at that side of the game. John Terry comes flying in with blocks, etc., And Wes Morgan... More, more recently, and there's a there's a little bit of a method behind it to an extent. Um, tags might disagree with the best tackler. I think uh, uh, more blocks and interceptions and stuff. Tags would like, go bone crunching challenges, wouldn't they? <laughs> oh, Geraldo, Take everything out, wouldn't he? Yeah, exactly, exactly. Which uh, I've got a couple of stories about. We'll save that for another date, maybe, Rob. But um, yeah, no, listen, I, I'm more than happy to be in. Uh, a component of Frank Sinclair's perfect player. Um, what an accolade that is. Nice of Cinco to remember me. What about you, Pipes? Can you remember uh, Frank Sinclair? What's your abiding memories of him? I can. Um, well, I've got a story about Frankie that I'll always remember. I, I, I don't know if you've had it. It's um, Frankie loved the night out, especially after a win, as Matty was just saying, um, and down in London. And because he had played for Chelsea... He had been on the night scene down there for years and years and years. So he, he took the young lads out one night and we all went down to a, a club in London called Sugar Reef, it was at the time. I don't know if it's still open. But it was literally, there was Frank Lampard in the queue to get in um, at the height of his time, uh, um, just after he signed for Chelsea. There was a couple of other uh, professional footballers in the queue that were big names and Frankie just strolled to the front. And took me, Jordan Stewart, John Stevenson, uh, Adi Akinbae was there, I think. Uh, he just walked to the front and the doorman just lifted up the the little thing and just let us in. I was like, wow. And this queue was probably 300 people deep. And then he said, oh, I've got a few more. And then he called Frank Lampard out and he took him in. And then he took another couple of footballers in. So I was amazed because this was really one of the first times I had been out in London. And we was, it, we was in there, I'd had a few drinks, I was a young lad, I was about 19, and I was um, down in the, in the toilets, just in the urinal, and I looked to my right, and Stevie Wonder was relieving himself next to me. I was like, oh my word, Stevie Wonder. So I ran upstairs and I told Frank it. And Frank Sinclair went absolutely crazy. And he ran downstairs, and we all followed him, and he just stood in front of Stevie Wonder and he said, you don't know how special a moment this is for me. My mum and dad told me I was made to you. <laughs> Stevie Wonder, <laughs> Frank Sinclair, there's a little scoop for you, Rob. How awkward was that conversation been with his parents? <laughs> I know, I, can, I can't believe it, but it always sticks in my mind because Frankie was not just a brilliant footballer. He, he was a great lad, but on a night out, he was sort of, Matty will tell you, he was sort of like the life and soul of the party. What, what did Stevie Wonder say, Pipes? He didn't really say much. He was just, ah, just <laughs> trying to tap him on the head. And the bodyguards were trying to get Frankie and all of his lot away from him. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds about right with the Cinco kids. What about you, Matt? I mean, you've got a few stories about Frank, haven't you? They're endless, to be honest. 
Um, as, as Pipe said, he was the main man on the social side. Uh, <laughs> bit of bit of a rogue. Um, most of the stories unrepeatable for public viewing, but uh, yeah, I've got a few, I've got a few that I can mention. One one in particular that stands out. Just a quick little anecdote was we all went out. Um, a bit of team bonding at Leicester City. We went out to the local bowling alley. So we've all piled in, about 25, 30 of us again, spread out across a few lanes, having a few drinks, bit of fun, competition. Uh, towards the end, Frankie's getting a, a little high-spirited. Uh, he, he's rolled his ball down, knocked down seven or so of the Skittles and decided to run down the alley and slide on his chest all the way down towards the Skittles. So, obviously, it's getting a little bit riotous and a few people are frowning at us. But as he's done so, he's skidded over, knocked over the, the remaining Skittles. As that's happened, the barrier's come down. <laughs> the barrier, so, he's lying on his belly. The barrier's come down and trapped him there for about two minutes. The machine's frozen. <laughs> and he's wriggling away with his arms and legs in the air like a trapped beetle. <laughs> he's screaming like, let me out let me out and oh, we're just in hysterics watching him thinking oh my word we're going to get chucked out of here any minute soon so uh, <laughs> just like ridiculous things but he was always getting involved when we got promoted we've been relegated the year before administration had been an issue uh, talking about deferment of wages that year it was imperative we got promoted we did so uh, under Mickey Adams and Frank Sinclair was a major part of that um, uh, so we, we got promoted, had a night out on the Saturday, big night out. The following night on the Sunday, had a party at my house to continue the celebrations of two very late nights on the trot. On the Monday, we've got to go to the town hall and meet the mayor and go to a civic reception, then go on to an open-top bus to do a tour around the city of the streets of Leicester. So... By this time, we're feeling a little bit jaded. We've had a long couple of days celebrating. Um, but the BBC East Midlands were, were on board with us on the bus as well, so they wanted to do a live interview. So we agreed. They said, Matt, we're going to come to you first, Muzzy second, Frank Sinclair third. We're like, okay, fine, not a problem. Interviewer, presenter comes over. Hi, Matt, how are you doing? Ask a couple of questions. Midway through, I've got my two-year-old son next to me, and he taps me on the shoulder, Dad. I need a wee live on air. I said, oh, right, I've got to deal with this. I've got a bottle of Lucasaid or someone, emptied it, my son's weeing in the bottle, and you can hear it trickling in live on air as they've panned across to Muzzy, is it? <laughs> so then the presenter said, right, Muzzy, uh, we've been caught short there, literally. Uh, what do you think about the atmosphere? Isn't it magnificent that the fans have turned out in their tens of thousands? And Muzzy's looked at him a little bit jaded after a long night at my house at the party and said, well, to be honest, mate, he said, uh, I haven't really been taking much notice. I'm so tired from last night at Matty's party. I can't really take it all in. <laughs> so that was, that was a bit of an anti-climax. So the presenter's struggling a bit. He says, OK, right, things not going to plan, uh, viewers. Sorry about this. He said, we'll pan over to Frank Sinclair, who's promised a word with us. As he did so across the aisle at the top of the bus, He's fast asleep, his chin on his chest, <laughs> snoring, <laughs> snoring like a good one. <laughs> they should have known better than try and interview you lot. Exactly. That hungover, that fatigued, he's Sparko. There's 30,000 people on the streets cheering and he's falling asleep on top of the bus. <laughs> and the presenter's just given up. He's gone, 
I've tried enough. You know, I'm done here. He said, my work is done. Back to the studio. <laughs> <laughs> the best pub team in Britain. Oh, dear. Funny times. Funny times. And Frank was like blissfully unaware that he'd missed this big opportunity for an interview. Brilliant, guys. Thank you so much for joining us today and entertaining, lifting the spirits of the, the listeners as we wait to, for football to restart again. Uh, stay safe. Stay healthy, everybody, as well. We'll be back with another edition of 5000 to 1 next week. Thank you very much.